praise to Srila Prabhupada, the Mahalas, the Krishna Prasthaya, the Tulay, Srimati Bhaktivinata Swami, the Namani, Namaste, Saraswati Deva, Gauravani Pachani, Nivasasi, Sindhavani, Paskajada, Satayana. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uttapada Kamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavam Shashi Rupam Sagrajatam Sahaganaravinatam Bitam Samsadivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahaganaravata Shri Vishakam Bitam Shri Antikapati Vishaki Pasambhira Tapti Kiyam Pavanega Vaishnavam Om Nimo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's April 24th, 2015 in Hillsborough, North Carolina reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 7, Chapter 1 The Supreme Lord is Equal to Everyone, Text 3 Itina Sumahabhaga Narayana Gunanpati Samshaya Sumahanjatas Tad Bhavams Chetumarhati Iti, thus, naha, our, sumaha bhaga, O glorious one, Narayana gunan, the qualities of Narayana, prati, toward, samshaya, doubt, sumahan, very great, jataha, born, tat, that, bhavan, your Lordship, Chetum Arhati, please dispel. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. O greatly fortunate and learned Brahmana, whether Narayana is partial or impartial, has become a subject of great doubt. Kindly dispel my doubt with positive evidence that Narayana is always neutral and equal to everyone. Purport. Since Lord Narayana is absolute, his transcendental qualities are described as one. Thus, his punishments and his offerings of favor are both of the same value. Essentially, his inimical actions are not displays of enmity towards his so-called enemies, but in the material field, one thinks that Krishna is favorable to devotees and unfavorable to non-devotees. When Krishna finally, instruct, what, when Krishna finally instructs in Bhagavad Gita, Sarva Dharma and Paricca Jama, Mekam Sharanam Varja, 
This is meant not only for Arjuna, but for every living entity within this universe. Iti nasu mahabhaga narayana gunam prati samshayasu mahanjatas tad bhavans chetumarhati. O greatly fortunate and learned Brahmana, whether Narayana as partial or impartial has become a subject of great doubt. Kindly dispel my doubt with positive evidence that Narayana is always neutral and equal to everyone. So, we all want fairness. Something everybody wants, fairness. There has been sociological studies of are there any moral values that are transcultural? And are there any universal moral values? And they found that there are five moral values that exist in all culture. Purity, authority, uh, fairness, community, and harm. So you can understand that these have some, uh, most of these have a biological basis. Purity, why is there a value on purity? Well, if you eat impure things, you become sick. Uh, Authority, we all have our parents. If you don't listen to your parents, it's, How are you going to survive, even? Uh, Community, the sense of having loyalty, not just to authority, but to your community, giving back to your community. You can see, again, this has some survival value. And harm, don't harm others. If you have a society where everybody's harming everybody else, how can anybody live? But fairness is a very interesting one. According to Darwin, we shouldn't actually be interested in fairness at all. If Darwin's theory is correct, then we should all be interested just in exploitation and the fittest survive. But we do have, all human beings in all societies and all cultures have an interest in fairness. And here, this is what Marge Prickett is asking. Is the Lord fair? and, And it often seems to us in our lives that the Lord is not fair. It, it seems to us that people who are good suffer, people who are bad enjoy. It doesn't, it doesn't seem that I get a fair shake, right? Most people, if you ask them, has your life been perfectly fair to you? How many people would say, oh yes, perfectly fair? But we have this, this urge for this fairness. So Mars Prickett is asking, is, is the Lord actually neutral? The other day I was in Alachua and the, at the Bhaktivedanta Academy some of the students were giving a little, uh, I not call it a drama, but like a little demonstration about Greek mythology. And I was thinking how in the stories of the demigods among the Greeks, the Romans, the Norse, the demigods are usually portrayed as very whimsical and, and very partial. They have friends and enemies, and if you just propitiate them in the right way, <laughs> you know, then you're, they're on your side. And uh, people may think of God like this. In fact, the main argument against the existence of God, the only logical argument against the existence of God, is that the world doesn't seem to be fair. I mean, certainly the world appears to be created. It would be pretty hard to be a logical, reasonable human being and conclude that the world is not created and maintained by someone. But what is the nature of that someone? Is that someone fair? And even most religious systems, I I would venture to say, don't really present God as being very fair. You know, religious systems who teach things like, okay, this is your only life. Well, right away, that's not fair. Right? Look at all everyone here in this room. Did we all have an equal chance in this life for everything? 
Did we all start out at the same place in life? Did we? Not anywhere close. Right? Some of us were born in families with wealth, some with families in poverty, some middle class. Some of us, our families were very educated, some they were very uneducated. Some of us were, were born with something wrong with our body right? that can never be fixed our whole life. Other people are born very healthy. And what about spiritually? Some people are born in a situation where they, their whole family is saturated with God. And other people are born into families of, you know, criminals and drug addicts and mafioso, right? I mean, just the disparity in the starting point in this life is, is huge. I mean, it, it's just absolutely tremendous. And then to say that God gives you one life where you just sort of randomly have these different births, right? It's just, it's just random. And some people are so uncomfortable in their body that they go through all kinds of medical treatments to change their body right, into something else. And then, okay, in this one life at which we all start off at vastly different places, then your only criteria is do you believe in God or not? You know, that's it. You have one, one shot and you believe in God, then you go eternally to heaven and you enjoy. And if you don't believe in God, you're eternally suffering. Eternally suffering. I mean, a lot of the way that most of us deal with suffering in this life is knowing that it's temporary, right? I had, a, I had a bad cold, and right, the way you're dealing with it, a lot of it, it just, okay, colds usually last seven to ten days. <laughs> After ten days, I'm going to feel better, right? But you go to hell, and you're just in this lake of fire eternally. So you got a one-life shot, and you're, you don't even know how long your life is. You know, your life might only be ten years, or 15 years or something like that. So how is God fair? I really believe that most religions in the world have a very unfair picture of God. That God is, And not only is God really unfair, but he seems to have, everything seems to be predicated on whether you like him or not. You know, you like me, you'll get everything nice. You don't like me, you'll not get everything nice. Well, that doesn't seem very fair either. This seems like partiality. and uh, this is, These things are criminal, isn't it? In human society, if you did something like that, if this is the way you treated your employees, that would be criminal. We have a, a lot of efforts, at least I know in the field of education, there's, there's a lot of efforts to try to what they call level the playing field and give everybody equal opportunity. And especially, especially in most Western countries today, we try to give opportunity, a special opportunity to those who are disadvantaged. You know, we've kind of skewed it toward the disadvantaged. So try to give them, just like we have the, these laws now in America that the government is legally responsible to educate every single child. That kind of law, that's, those are fairly recent laws. And that means no matter how severely handicapped the child is, the government may have to spend for that one child $100,000 a year to give them special education. Now, just like also when I was in Alatra, we have a charter school there. And I said, how much money do you get? He said, we get $4,000 per child per year for education. But again, if a child has some severe handicap, the government may be spending $100,000, $150,000 for that one child. So we have some concept like that, that we should level the playing field. We give everybody an opportunity. But God doesn't seem to do that. You know, it, it, it seems like he's very whimsical and very partial. Yes? So this question is, is being brought up. And it's especially being brought up by atheistic people that say, I don't think it's very fair. 
that you just you just if you like God and you believe in Him, then you get everything nice, and if you don't like Him, you don't get everything nice. I mean, could you imagine if we ran a temple like that? You know, if the temple president said, "Well, if you're my friend and you like me, we'll get you plates of Mahaprasadam," and <laughs> right, you don't like me, you can't come on the property anymore. Everybody would complain, right? It'll be a complaint to the GBC body. No, this is not fair. So how is it? He wants positive evidence. As Prabhupada says in his purport, dispel my doubt with positive evidence that Narayana is neutral and impartial. And Srila Prabhupada mentions in this purport that it may appear that the Lord is inimical. I mean, he says, we mentioned this yesterday, Paritranaya Sadhunam Vinashaya Chaduskutam. I'm saving the devotees and he's destroying the atheists who appears like this. You know, he kills Hiranyakashipu and he gives the kingdom to Prahlad. But actually, he's not, he's not uh, partial. It's not like that. Everything is fair. I think one of the most wonderful aspects of our Krishna conscious philosophy, one of the things that at least attracted me to the Krishna consciousness movement, all right, Krishna, uh, was our understanding of how the universe works so that everything is fair. If we want to look at what unique contributions does the Krishna consciousness movement make to philosophy and spirituality, you know, and I've thought about this a lot because there's much of what we say and we practice that are also said and practiced by other religious and philosophical groups. And, and I know I uh, consulted with Sadaputi years ago, and he said, if you want to give the kids faith in science, in Krishna conscious science, you should present that there are other groups that have our same beliefs. There are other groups who believe that evolution is not true. There are other groups of people who believe in the existence of paranormal phenomena, that we're different from the body, we're different from the mind, that there's other living entities on other planets, and you know, the cosmology isn't like described by the astronomers. So there's other, we're not the only ones who have those beliefs. But there are certain things that we really have a unique contribution Certainly one of them is that Krishna is a person, that God is a person, you know, that he herds cows in a, in a transcendental village, and Akila Rasamrita Murti, how Krishna is responding in all these ways to all these different rasas. But another really unique contribution we have is this concept of fairness. Of course, there's certainly other philosophies and religious groups that understand something about the cycle of karma and reincarnation. But most of them don't combine that with the idea of a very personal and loving God. You know, the Buddhists talk about karma and reincarnation, but their idea is that ultimately we're nothing. And that, you know, none of this stuff is real at all. It doesn't actually even exist. Even the Mayavadis, they say it doesn't really exist. So our conception is a little different. We say everything's fair, right? Everything's fair because everything is according to one's own actions. Everything is according to one's own actions. Now, of course, that may not appear that way in the particular moment, but if we could see the whole picture. I mean, I remember uh, when I was a Gurukul teacher in Detroit, so there was one little girl who was really behaving very poorly in the temple room and causing a whole disturbance. So I said, you know, you need to go out of the temple room and just stand in the corner for a few minutes until you calm down. Right about three, four minutes later, I went out to check on her, and she's sitting on her father's lap, and he's saying, 
Oh, are you okay? Why did your mean teacher send you out of the temple room? You know, and because he didn't see what happened in the temple room, he was just thinking, oh, my poor little baby. So we have this, you know, myopia, so to speak, where we just see a little piece of life. We don't see the whole picture, like I was talking last night, how in our own life, you know, we may be being mistreated and not realize that we're mistreating others in a similar way. We don't even see that in ourselves. So everything's fair in that sense. And not only fair, but everything's beneficial in that the purpose of karma, the whole purpose of karmic reactions, is to bring us to compassion and empathy. It's to bring us to a realization. Vijavanai sampane brahmani gamihasani suni chai vasapaketya pandita samadarshina that we have a sense of oneness, that we're connected, that we're not separate. It's to break this illusion that I am separate from Krishna and separate from all of the living entities, and that somehow I have a separate interest, that my interests are separate from all of your interests. Because it isn't a fact. There's this nice quote, we had it on the papers last night, where Prabhupada said, you can only hurt yourself. He said, you're so foolish, you think you're hurting others, but you're only hurting yourself. And anything we do to harm others, really, we're only hurting ourselves. So karma is meant to bring us to this understanding, however long it takes, whatever's involved, uh, that we're, we're connected. We're, we're all connected. Our, our interests are, are the same. We, have the same. we actually have the same center. And it's just simply an illusory idea that I'm separate from you and I, I can gain something for myself by harming you. It just isn't true. I I can't do that. So really, karma is working for our benefit. It's working for our benefit. It's it's meant for our rectification. It's meant to bring us to a place of unlimited joy. I, I really like the verse in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says that as one advances, one sees the self by the pure mind and relishes and rejoices in the self. That, that we are wonderful. You know, we have these words, atmarama, atmirati, atmatushta. You know, many times we think humility means to hate ourselves. We, we just look at these verses, like in Chaitanya Charitamrita, where Krishna does, Kaviraj says, I'm lower than the worm in stool, you know, I'm more sinful than Jagai and Madai. Anyone who says my name becomes sinful. And we kind of stop there, you know, and say, okay, that's what humility is. But then he goes on, you know, have to read, it's about 17 verses. And he says, even though I'm so sinful, I'm being engaged in the service of Radha Krishna. I'm getting the mercy of Lord Nityananda. So karma is meant to bring us to that platform, that if I try to act separately from Krishna, uh, then I'm a fool. But as soon as I connect with Krishna, then, you know, everything is glorious. And I'm satisfied with the self. I love myself. Admirati is the word. One has love for oneself. And Krishna says that when one loves oneself, then one experiences boundless transcendental happiness through transcendental senses. So this karma is meant to bring us to love ourselves. We cannot love the false self. By the way, the false self isn't very lovable. You know, this body isn't very lovable. Is it? Is the body very lovable? I don't think so. Even if we have, you know, even if you have beautiful hair, if you saw a bunch of hair on the ground, you know, is it very lovable? Or your beautiful eyes, you know, if you saw some eyeballs, not very lovable. <laughs> the body's not very lovable. <laughs> We're constantly trying to hide the unlovable aspects of our body. 
You know, and the mind, is the mind very lovable? Would anybody want to take the contents of their mind and post it on the internet? Hopefully. They do it all the time. (laughs) But it's not very attractive. But the real self is very attractive. We are very attractive beings. We are very lovable beings. And spiritual awakening comes, as Krishna explains, when we love our real self. So karma is meant to bring us to this point. Karma is meant to bring us to awakening our real wonderful self. And then humility is just, wow, what a fool I am that I have, I'm this wonderful being and yet I'm going swimming in the sewage. It's kind of like if you go to Vrindavan and instead of swimming in the Jamuni, you swim in the sewage like with the pigs. Oh, what a fool I am. I'm a, I'm a diamond that I'm going swimming in the sewage. So this is what karma is meant to bring us to that point. So therefore, it's, it's really beneficial. It's meant to awaken us to the fact that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wonderful being, I'm a part of God, and I have no suffering at all. None of the suffering has anything to do with me. It's simply an, an, an illusion that I'm, cre- I'm connected with this suffering. And then what about Krishna's direct intervention? So we can see how the law of karma has a beneficial purpose. It's meant to bring us to boundless transcendental happiness. And Krishna's intervention is also like that. In fact, we could say Krishna's intervention is more beneficial even than the law of karma. First of all, it's much faster. So the law of karma may bring one to this realization after a long, long, long time. I mean, I read something really, really heavy. I I ended up reading an article by this one gentleman about reincarnation. And the the reason I started reading it is that he was an atheist, and he became uh, interested in reincarnation uh, through chanting Hare Krishna. So he he wanted, I I think he just wanted to improve his health. I think that was just his thought in the beginning. But he also wanted to find out, you know, what, what was the world all about and were things fair. That was his, his interest. So he started meditating, and he had no idea how to meditate. And he thought, well, I know you're supposed to meditate with a mantra, and the only mantra I know is Hare Krishna from George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. That was the only mantra he knew, so he sat down and started chanting Hare Krishna. And so I was, I was kind of interested. I was reading some stuff by him. Anyway, he, he ended up having, you know, all kinds of amazing realizations about his previous, like, nine lives and... He, would be, he developed, by his meditation, he developed all kinds of mystic abilities to see other people's lives. And what really fascinated me is he, he said that it seems that many people only learn one karmic lesson per life. He said, in some people, it takes them 100 lifetimes just to learn one karmic lesson. It's like, wow. I mean, sometimes we even see in our Hare Krishna movement, even you may see devotees that you see get stuck somewhere. You ever seen devotees that get stuck somewhere? Like they're still dealing with the same issue. You know, and you see them 10 years later and they're still dealing with the same issue. You know, I ran into a devotee like this about a year ago who's like, I, I need a husband in my life. And she's tried. It just hasn't worked out. You know, she's tried several times and it just it's never worked out. And here she is like 70-something years old. And like, I need a husband in my life. I'm like, well, maybe you could clearly get over this and, and go on to the next step in your life. Oh, and she was just stuck there. Or somebody being stuck in, I'm so unqualified. You know, I can't do it. I'm just so unqualified. You know, okay, you've been saying this for 20 years now. And, and so we can get stuck somewhere in some aspect, right, and not move forward. And especially in karma, it's like, especially if you're in the law of karma, you know, you can, you can get stuck somewhere. And it can take a long, long, long time, like these taking births for as many hairs as there are, bo- as there are on the body of a cow, to learn one thing. 
you know, just to learn one thing. I shouldn't kill animals. I should have compassion for animals. Thousands of lifetimes to learn one thing. And then King Rigastor, you know, you may have to take birth as a worm in stool for 60,000 years to learn that you shouldn't steal a Brahmin's property. You know, so Krishna's intervention tends to be a little faster than that. When Krishna gets directly involved, he tends to speed things up. He gives you token reactions. Like I had a student here who came and was five years, when I tested him, he was five years behind in school. And I said to him, you know, are you willing to catch up? And he said, yeah, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And he really was. Some kids say that and they aren't, but he really was. And he went to school here for two years. And in two years, he progressed seven years in school. You know, and he was, and one of the ways that we did that was we wouldn't always give him a whole lesson to do. You know, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't get the facility of all of the practice. Usually you need that. You need a lot of practice to solidify something. But what we would do is we would just give him the most basic thing to learn it and then move on. But I always had to check with him. Do you need more time? You know, have you gotten this? And every once in a while we'd have to kind of back up and spend more time on something. So Krishna very much, and he was a very serious devotee. Uh, I see him regularly when I go to L.A. Uh, wonderful, wonderful gentleman. And Krishna also deals like this with us, with the devotees, that he gives you just this little token reaction. And if you can get it, then okay, you can move on to the next little token thing. And if you get that, then you can move on. And only when we get stuck, Krishna says, all right, let's go in depth here. You know, let's go, let's go deep on this thing. All right, you're not supposed to offend the devotees. Okay, let, let's try to get into this in depth here. Or, you know, you're supposed to love yourself, your soul. Let's go into depth on this, dear, you know. Or you're supposed to be solid in your, in your sadhana. You know, whatever it may be that we're, that we're struggling with. You know, each of us have our different struggles. Like I met one devotee who struggles with gambling. He's a compulsive gambler. Even though he's second initiated, he's been practicing for so long, you know, he just can't give up his gambling. And more and more, you see devotees who struggle with pornography, for example. And this, I mean, it's becoming more and more common that people are struggling, devotees are struggling with pornography. So, you know, Krishna may have to work sometimes for years or decades on one thing, but still, he tries to do it like Prabhupada says, if we're as serious as Dhruva Maharaj, we can finish this in one life. So let's imagine, you know, that in the law of karma, it may take you a hundred lifetimes for one lesson, or 60,000 years for one lesson. And Krishna's going to say, okay, in Kali Yuga, when, you know, you don't even live, how many people live a hundred years? Do we know very many people who lived a hundred years? Not very many. Not very many. I mean, my grandma-in-law, she lived to be 102. And my mother-in-law, I think, about 98, my grandmother about 98, but that's pretty rare. I mean, when, when people die in their 60s, we're not surprised, right? Seems to me as soon as you hit 60, if somebody dies, we're not surprised anymore. Under 60, we're like, oh, but after 60. So one very short life, very, very short life, and full of miseries in this Kali Yuga. Yeah. You know? and, and you can make it in this one life, because Krishna's acting for one's benefit. And even the so-called punishments are really for one's benefit. We see this in the parental relationship in this world. You know, I've heard some devotees preach that, well, until a child's five, you should let them do whatever they want. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. I said, Mother Yasoda didn't let little Krishna do whatever he wanted until he was five. She tied him up. You know, nowadays we'd put them in a playpen. We wouldn't tie them up. 
But the activities of the parents, hopefully, hopefully, not always, of course, because we're fallible beings, but the activities of the parents, even in punishing their child, are beneficial. Isn't it a fact? Right? Whether the parents are giving their child a cookie or whether they're taking the child to the doctor where the child gets an injection. It's both beneficial for the child. It's, it's not that only the cookie is beneficial and the, the injection is harmful. At least the intentions of the parents are beneficial. But Krishna actually knows what's beneficial. So, you know, sometimes he may give you surgery and sometimes he may give you cookies. But it, it's all for our benefit. It's all to bring us to where we want to go. And, and especially when we're saying to Krishna, Krishna, I want pure love of God. Krishna, I want to go back to go home, back to Godhead. And I'd really like to do it in this life, although it seems impossible. Yes? Does it seem impossible? It seems impossible to me. I look at myself and like, one life? You've got to be kidding. You know, I'm almost at the end of it. And it doesn't seem like... It doesn't seem like... I, in fact, it seems like I've gone backwards. Does it seem like that? The more you chant Hare Krishna, the more fallen that you appear to yourself. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon? You know, when I first read the Bhagavad Gita, I thought, oh yeah, I'm in goodness on that one, and I'm in goodness on that one, and I'm in goodness on that one. Now I read the Bhagavad Gita, I'm like, well, I'm in ignorance on that one, and I'm in ignorance on that one. <laughs> but if we're going to Krishna and saying, you know, I, I want to go back to home, back to Godhead in this life, um, then he's certainly going to be asked, acting for our benefit. Now, how do we see that? How do we see that? I mean, it's, it's very easy to see that when it's good. So I tell this story a lot, and it's, again, strange to tell this story here. And this story has to do with you, Golokanan. <laughs> Yesterday I didn't say who my story had to do with, but this time I'll tell I tell the story all over the world. So I, I was looking in my, in my closet one time, and I had about three silk saris. Now I don't have any silk saris, and nor do I want any. Thank you very much. But anyway, I had about three silk saris, and I was thinking, it'd be nice to have another one. You know, I mean, I don't wear them very often. I wear them on festivals. It'd be nice to have another one. I get a picture in my mind of what I wanted. I thought, well, I'd like it to be kind of a little off-white and, and real thick, high-quality silk and an embroidered border. I really like embroidery. And, you know, I had this whole picture. And then I thought, maybe when I go to India next time, I'll get one. Oh, it'll probably cost like $40 nowadays. It'll probably cost like $70. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to spend $40 on a silk sari. Forget it. And the whole thought lasted maybe 20 seconds. I'm sure you all have thoughts like that. Something comes into your mind and you think about it, it'll be nice to have this, and then it's just kind of gone. And you know, I didn't think about it anymore at all. And three days later, you pulled up to the school to pick up Harijat, and you called me. I don't know if you remember this. And you called me over to your car, and you said, Ermila, I have a present for you. You know, oh, what's that? And you handed me a sari. It was as, as if I had custom-ordered it. It looked exactly like the mental picture that I had had in my mind. As I, it, exactly. Really. As it, it was as if I had gone to some you know, cloth weaver and, and embroidery person and exactly custom ordered it, and they delivered exactly what I wanted. I was so, you know, and I started crying. And I said, Krishna, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I asked you for a piece of cloth. You know? <laughs> Please forgive me. Please forgive me. So in a case like that, it's so easy to see that Krishna's involved in our life, right? Have we all had situations like this? Right? I mean, when I first joined the temple and I was looking at the maha and thinking, boy, I'd like one of those pieces of burfi. Two minutes later, somebody came and handed me a piece of burfi. The, the day after I joined, I went out on Harinam and I didn't have good shoes for Harinam. And I think, you know, I, these shoes aren't going to work. If I'm going to be doing this every day, I need different shoes. And I got back to the temple and someone said, hey, someone left these shoes and I have very small and wide feet, they're hard to fit. 
I came back to the temple and they said, hey, someone left these shoes and they were perfect for Harinam and fit me perfectly. And it's so easy when this sort of thing happens in our life to see, wow, Krishna's involved in my life and it's beneficial. And Prabhupada makes the point, if we can see that for the beneficial, we should also be willing to see it for the others. You know, we should be willing to see it for the others. Now, sometimes, of course, we can see it in time. We can see it in time, and I'm not going to get into the details of this story, but something happened uh, in, in my life that I consider to be a great catastrophe. I mean, a really great catastrophe. It was like all of my hopes and dreams in the Hare Krishna movement were just smashed to smithereens, and there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, something what I had wanted and, and everything and planned for for years, it was just destroyed. And for four years after that, I was very like, why did you do this, Krishna? Why did you do this? You know, this was for my service, and it was, it was what Prabhupada wanted. And, and 15 years later, I was able to see that had we stayed in that situation, it would have been a catastrophe. That Krishna had completely saved us, just completely. He put us in a much better situation, you know, for ourselves, for our children, everything. But it took 15 years for me to see that, that Krishna's hand that appeared to be, to me at the time, just like the worst catastrophe I could imagine, which is actually kind of childish. You know, the worst, what's the worst catastrophe you can imagine? You know, you're, you're conquered by, you're captured by pirates or something, you know. <laughs> you're tortured. I mean, it wasn't anything like that. But in my childish way, I thought, oh, this is, and sometimes devotees say, Krishna's taken everything. It's like everything. Can you walk? Do you have clothes? I mean, what are you talking about? But anyway, in, in, in after 15 years, it seemed, you know, I saw, oh, Krishna's hand was in this. Krishna's hand was in this. Prabhupada said this to Harikesh. Harikesh was Prabhupada's servant, and Prabhupada sent him away. And then Harikesh did all this wonderful service in the communist countries. And Prabhupada later said to him, you thought that I was punishing you, but actually this was for your benefit and for the benefit of the world. So some things we can see in this life how Krishna's so-called punishments of us and so-called cruelty of us is actually for our benefit, certainly spiritually, and often even materially. I mean, often even materially. One story I can tell in this regard, I was in London, and uh, they put me in an apartment a few blocks from the temple. I was staying with another lady, and I was giving a class at the temple that ended kind of late, maybe 9.30 at night. We got back to the apartment, and my laptop had been stolen. And in those days, my laptop was really my only personal possession. Even now, I don't really have any personal possessions. But my laptop was the only thing I could say, this is mine. Now, in those days, I also had a desktop, so I had all my data backed up on the desktop. I didn't lose any data. But still, to lose the only thing that was mine. And and I remember sitting outside the room, the police came uselessly, you know, just completely uselessly. Filled out a report. talked about that when his things were stolen in New York. The police fill out a report, and then they go... And I was there, why, Krishna, why? Why did you take the only, the only thing in the world that was mine? You know, were you angry with me? What's going on? So the town president, Mahadudipu, said, we'll take up a collection to buy you a new laptop. I said, you don't need to do that. It wasn't your fault. No, no, we'll do that. So I was there maybe another week, and we were getting in like maybe 50, 60, 70 pounds had come in, and I'm like, you know, forget this. And then the last two days, devotees gave so much money that not only could I buy a brand, that had been a used laptop, I was able to buy a brand new laptop that was much better and even a set of nice speakers for my computer. 
There was even extra money. I had more than what I needed. So sometimes we end up seeing that Krishna's punishment is not only spiritually beneficial, but also materially beneficial. Sometimes it happens like that. Krishna takes away one thing and he gives you something great and even materially. Sometimes materially it's not better. Sometimes you can't find the material silver lining in the dark cloud. Sometimes there's some smashing and bashing and crashing and there isn't a new laptop at the end of it. You know, (laughs) there isn't something better on the material sphere at the end of it. But there always is a spiritual benefit. And I believe that sometimes some things we won't see while we're in this body. That there are certain difficulties we go through. That some things we will see in this body. Sometimes it may take, you know, a week to see it, like with the laptop. Sometimes it might take 15 years to see it as with this other thing. But some things we're not going to see until we're out of this body. And then we'll see, you know, everything is perfect. As Prabhupada says in the purport to 1515, God is all good, God is all merciful. And we will see that every single thing that's happened to me in my life, even, even the worst catastrophes that I wasn't able to find any meaning in, I wasn't able to make any sense out of it. I wasn't able to find what benefit it was. It seemed like it was only hard. It seemed like it harmed me spiritually even. I, I just couldn't make any sense out of it. That we'll see that it actually is fair. And it actually is, is good. And this is, I think, one of the most wonderful things of our Krishna conscious philosophy. So when these things happen to us, just like when the good things happen, we say, oh, Krishna's arrangement. Krishna's kind, you know. And when the bad things happen, also, this is Krishna's kindness. This is Krishna's love. He's trying to bring me to a platform of, of universal love, of love for him, of love for myself, of love for all living entities. He's trying to bring me to this boundless transcendental happiness. And whether he does it through a cookie or an injection, it, it doesn't really, it ultimately doesn't really matter. So anyone have any questions or comments? Yes, Tristan. Before the devotees, um, where karma is in some, in some sense mitigated. Yes. But operati, mm. operati really see, I mean, whether it's Vaishnava Aparat or Dhamma Aparat or Dhamma Aparat, you know, so many different, isn't that the, the, the seed of so much of our difficulty? Mm. So just to repeat for people who can't hear, so you're saying our karma is mitigated, but what about our Aparats, our Nam Aparats, Dhamma Aparats, Vaishnava Aparats, isn't that the seed of so much of our difficulty? Definitely. Definitely. But I was just hearing Prabhupada say this morning, he was in Vrindavan, and it was really funny what Prabhupada said in Vrindavan. It's like 1972. He said, no one comes to Vrindavan to do business. Wow. That isn't true in 2015. He said, everyone comes here to Vrindavan for spiritual advancement. No one comes here to Vrindavan to do business. He said, but if, even if someone does and therefore makes an operat, he said, the Dom has its own power, its own potency. And eventually they'll be purified. So in the same way, even if we commit an offense to the devotees, to the deity, to the dham, the connection, the, a Sanskrit used in the Bhagavatam is atma-virya, those things have their own potency. So the connection with those things will eventually bring us to perfection, but we will have to get rectified of our offenses. And yes, certainly, a lot of our suffering is due to offenses. A lot of our suffering is due to offenses, which are in a different category than bad karma. It's not exactly bad karma. It's... It's like a difference between I'm breaking the state laws or I go into your house as a guest and I'm rude to you. You know, 
if I'm rude to you in your house, it's not like I'm stealing your stuff. It's not, I haven't broken the law. But I, I, you could say I've broken the law of love. I've broken the law of, of relationships, even though I haven't technically broken the law. So it's a, it's a different thing. And in one sense, offenses are much more breaking the law than karma. Because reality is much more about loving relationships than it is about technical things in this world where nothing is as ultimate meaning anyway. I think of this world as a big monopoly game. You know, so in one sense, if you cheat in monopoly, it, it, it doesn't have the meaning of that isn't as substantial as if you damage relationships because the ultimate reality is about relationships. The ultimate reality is not about karma. Karma is really just exchanging monopoly money. You know, I owe you 200 monopoly dollars, you owe me 100 monopoly dollars. I mean, that's really all the law of karma is about. So, yeah, we should be very, very careful not to commit offenses. I mean, frankly, if we didn't commit any offenses, we could probably attain to pure devotional service in about a week of practicing Christian consciousness. Or sometimes probably we'll say instantly in a moment. That's really the the problem. And some of these offenses are very uh, deep-rooted and subtle and disguised in different ways, quite a problem. Thank you. Shri Radha Golakananda Ki Jai.